Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. And welcome those who are online. It's so great to be with you. I bring greetings as well from Bethel Seminary where I teach um, and also from a brand new school, Pacific Theological Seminary has just launched in San Diego. Yay. All right. We just had an open house yesterday. And um, so if you are thinking about seminary training or if you are just interested in auditing some courses at a higher level biblically and theologically, um, contact us. We're online, Pacific Theological Seminary. All right. Oxymoron. Is that a great word? Just a great word to say. Oxymoron. An oxymoron stands for a figure of speech in which apparently contradictory terms appear in conjunction. I love oxymorons. I I found a list of oxymorons and I made a top ten list of oxymorons. So here are some of them. Um, Exact estimate. Can it be exact? If it's an estimate, right? Working vacation. Well, which is it? Is it working or is it a vacation? Tight slacks. It'll take you a while. Think about that. Yeah, Slack, tight, got it right. Plastic glasses. You wearing glasses or, or glasses you drink? Both of those, plastic glasses. Right? A small crowd? Small crowd? Is it a crowd or is it small? Sorry to my postal people, but postal service is an oxymoron. Genuine imitation. You probably heard that one before. Airline food. There's an oxymoron. Government organization, and my favorite since I've been a long-term Mac user, Microsoft works, or not, right? All right, I raise the issue of oxymoron because for some, the title of our present series, Sacred Sexuality, seems to be an oxymoron. Those words don't seem to go together for many people. Sacred relates to the spiritual side of life. Right? Our souls, our spirits, our relationship with God, our inner life, our devotion to Him. Clouds and harps and ethereal kinds of stuff, right? Sexuality, on the other hand, is, is external. It's physical. It's bodily. It's fleshly. Some would say it's carnal. But, but, but that, <laughs> that is so wrong. Sex is spiritual because God created it. It was part of His good design, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. God's first command to humanity is have lots of sex and have lots of babies. And just after this, we learn that God saw that all he had made and it says it was very good. Very good. Up to that point, everything is good. The creation is good. Now you get sex and it's very good, right? And it's not sexual relations that are sinful, as some think it is the distortion and misuse of sex that results in sin. Sex itself is a sacred act, a truly spiritual thing that impacts body, soul, and spirit. Our passage today is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, if you want to turn there, where the Apostle Paul addresses the question of sexual relations in marriage. Now, I don't know about you, but when some people think of the Apostle Paul, sex therapist is not the first thing they think of, right? This is Paul, right? The staunch, unsmiling rabbi, 
in some people's minds. But Paul demonstrates some really profound insights into marital, marital happiness in the bedroom. So I've called this message Pastor Paul on Love, Sex, and Marriage. Now the series on sacred sexuality, as you know, is part of a larger series on 1 Corinthians that we're going through here at Emmanuel Faith. So let me remind you of the historical context of this letter. It's so important, especially for this passage, it's so important. Let's talk about the background at Corinth. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. That's in southern Greece, about AD 54 or so. And the church is struggling in a variety of different ways. This is a very immature church. In large part, it's immature because of the context in which it grew up in. This context is a sex-saturated society. Right, I say that three times, right? Corinth was a microcosm of the Greco-Roman world. And sexual promiscu promiscuity was the norm in the Greco-Roman world. One Greek writer kind of epitomizes this, sums it up. When he talks about the sexual values of men of his day, he says this. He says, we have mistresses for pleasure. We have prostitutes for daily needs. And we have wives to bear us legitimate children and to be guardians of our households. Wives keep house and do their sexual duty. Prostitutes and mistresses provide entertainment. There's the sexual norms of the Greco-Roman world. And within the Roman Empire, Corinth was one of the most decadent of cities. Sexual temptations were everywhere in Corinth. It was a major urban center, a crossroads for trade and commerce. So there were sailors and merchants and soldiers passing through constantly. Archaeologists have discovered rows of, of taverns and bars, hookup joints, in the main street of Corinth. city also, as, as Pastor Ryan pointed out, was full of pagan temples, some of which practiced sacred prostitution, had temple prostitutes where you'd go into worship and you'd, you'd, you'd go into a, a prostitute, have sex with her as part of this supposed, this supposed worship. So in many ways, Corinth was, was a culture very much like ours. As in our context, sexual temptations were everywhere. Only the media was different, right? For us, it's TV and movies, social media, and in, in the internet. In Corinth, it was pagan temples, mistresses, and street prostitutes. And many who had grown up in that context were struggling. Many in the Corinthian church were struggling with sexual temptation. Much like many in our context are struggling in our society. The situation was made worse by a false worldview that permeated Greco-Roman society. We talked about this a lot last week. Uh, that we call it a dualistic worldview. A dualistic worldview. And dualism separates the body and the spirit. It separates the material world from the physical, from the spiritual world. And the material world is viewed as ir evil or irrelevant. This goes back to Platonic, Plato's philosophy brought into a religious context. Only the spirit world is good. And in that context this world, of this world, two uh, worldview, two extreme perspectives arose in the church in Corinth to respond to sexual temptation. The first one was sexual promiscuity. Basically, the idea here is if our body is separate from our spirit, then what you do to your body doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. You may as well just live it up because anything you do to the body has no effect on your spiritual life. And the Corinthians had certain slogans for this. 
Remember, talked about this before. All things are lawful for me, they would say. We're no longer under the law of Moses, Moses so we can do whatever we want. We can, we can have any kind of sexual relations. It doesn't affect us spiritually because we are saved by faith. Another slogan they used was food for the body, the body for food. But God will destroy them both. If only the spirit survives, if this body is just for this life, then we can do whatever we want because it's going to be cast away. It's not going to be go on forever. We see this attitude today in many ways. It's just sex, right? It's a, a hookup culture or casual sex. We talk about casual sex. That's an oxymoron, by the way, casual sex. And as we saw last week, Paul responds, you're wrong on multiple levels. First, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by it. Sexual promiscuity does real damage, not only to our bodies, but to our souls. It affects who we are as people and our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Second, Paul says, our bodies are not destined for destruction, but for resurrection. The physical world is a good thing, not an evil thing, not a bad thing. And it's going to be restored and renewed in the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth, when we receive glorified bodies. We are not just souls inhabiting bodies. We are embodied persons. And if that's the case, then sex affects your very soul. Third, Paul says, your body is the place where God himself now chooses to dwell. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are God's presence in this world. Why would you bring a prostitute? Why would you bring sexual immorality into that context where God is dwelling? So what does Paul say? He says, so flee, flee sexual immorality. Get away from it. So Paul first answers those who are responding to sexual temptation with promiscuity. But we learned this week that others in Corinth took dualism in a very different direction. If the body was evil, then it should be disciplined. It needs to be whipped into shape. So they responded not with promiscuity, but with asceticism, which means self-denial. They became ascetics, viewing the physical pleasure as a bad thing to be avoided at all costs. And in that context, sexual relations were considered evil. They were considered to be defiling. You reach a higher spiritual phase or plane by denying your physical pleasures. Now, this has actually been a, a popular perspective throughout church history. We see it often. We talk about the monk lifestyle, right? Where, not not the, the TV show monk, but the monk where you join a monastery, right? You, you join a monastery and separate yourself from the world's pleasures so that you can live a simple life without those extra pleasures. Strict self-denial is part of this. One early church father, Origen, the third century theologian, went so far as to avoid sexual temptations, he castrated himself. It's a bit extreme, don't you? Right? Many of you know that Roman Catholic priests aren't allowed to marry. That's to demonstrate their complete and full commitment to Christ. Lots of religious traditions have this asceticism as part of their tradition. Uh, some of you might remember, if you're old enough to remember, Marshall Applewhite. He was the leader of the Heaven's Gate cult. Remember Rancho Santa Fe? This whole group of people committed suicide. They were dualists. They were saying that <clears throat> they were going to shed their bodies, shed their external bodies, and, and merge with the spirit world. And so Marshall Applewhite castr had himself castrated in order to avoid sexual desires. 
So some of the Corinthians were demonstrating this kind of denial. And what, what they were doing was then they were staying single. If marriage is defiling, some of them were even breaking off their engagements. Others were abstaining from sex in marriage. You see, not tonight, dear. I'm feeling particularly spiritual tonight. There's a new excuse. That, that was replacing the headache excuse. Others were initiating divorce, especially with unbelieving spouses, particularly if they're married to an unbeliever. That's especially defiling. So they were actually divorcing their unbelieving spouses. This was creating a crisis in the church. Weddings were being canceled. Divorces were being initiated. Couples were not having normal sexual relations. And in fact, they wrote a letter to Paul to ask about this. Things are at a crisis level here. Notice how this chapter begins. Chapter 7 begins. Paul says, now for the matters you wrote about. Now, this is a key transition in the letter, by the way, because Paul now turns to issues that the church has written to ask him about. Sorry about that. There it is. Now, for matters you've written about, key transition in the letter. This begins a series of questions from Corinth. And the first question is, is this what you meant by sexual purity? Canceling weddings, denying sex and marriage, initiating divorce. So in chapter 7, Paul answers all of these issues. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is the chapter on marriage, on singleness, on divorce in the New Testament, one of the key chapters. So let's hear Paul, Pastor Paul, apostle, a marital counselor, and sex therapist here in chapter 7. First of all, let's start with Paul's affirmation of singleness and celibacy. The first thing Paul gives us, surprisingly maybe, is an affirmation of celibacy. Singleness and sexual abstinence, Paul says, are good things. Verse 1, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, two things I want you to see. First of all, notice the quotes in your Bibles. Most of your Bibles should have quotes around that. That's the editors, again, telling you that this is a slogan. So this is something the Corinthians were saying. They were saying it's better not to have sexual relations. There's also a translation question I want you to see here, and that is, if you have a New American Standard in front of you, it probably says it is good for a man not to touch a woman, not to touch a woman. How can, how can Paul command them not to touch a woman? If we had a greeting time, no one would be, you know, don't greet everyone beside you, but don't touch the women, right? But this is a Greek euphemism. You know what a euphemism is? A euphemism is where you, you say something indirectly to avoid saying something more graphic or explicit. So euphemism, if I say I'm going to the bathroom, I'm not saying what I'm going to do in there. I'd say I'm going in the bathroom. You might say, you don't need a bath. Why are you going to the bathroom? Well, right, that's a euphemism. You say, he's sleeping with her. And you say, it's no problem if they're just sleeping, right? That's not a problem. That's a euphemism. Touch a woman is a euphemism for having sexual relations. That's why the NIV and the ESV say it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, Paul agrees, surprisingly, Paul agrees in part. He doesn't reject the slogan. Abstinence and celibacy are good options. Paul himself had chosen this option for his life. Now, some people think Paul may have been married before this and that maybe his wife divorced him when he came to Christ, rejected him because of his, what she viewed as a rejection of Judaism. We don't know, but there's no indication. We know Paul is single now. There's no indication he was ever married. Jesus was celibate. Right? Jesus didn't marry. John the Baptist was celibate. Celibacy is a good gift from God. And throughout much of this chapter, Paul speaks of the benefits of singleness. 
Look at verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am, he says. Verse 8, it is good to stay unmarried as I do. So why would Paul suggest that abstinence is a good thing? Now, you're going to cover that a lot more in weeks ahead, I assume, right? Because that's going to be a major topic in the, in the passages coming up. But let me just point briefly to two reasons that Paul's going to talk about. One is that abstinence teaches self-discipline. And self-discipline is a crucial lesson in life, thing to learn in life. Now, we recognize this intuitively in other areas of life, right? If I, if I want to lose weight, for example, it takes self-discipline. I walk into the food court and the golden arches are on one side and the salad bar is on the other. I have a decision to make and my body is saying one thing. My body is saying fat, salt, sugar, yum, go this way. And my mind is saying, no, go for the leafy greens over here. You'll be much healthier for it. It takes self-discipline to turn one way rather than the other. Or I'm trying to get in shape. The alarm goes off at 6 a.m. And my mind says, get up. And my body says, no, hit the snooze alarm 10 times, right? We realize in life that maturity requires self-discipline. If we're going to be mature people, we have to exercise self-discipline. And we don't expect that of babies. They're immature. We don't expect that. What does every parent do on the baby's first birthday? Have you seen this? I've seen this every time, every time. What do they do? They buy a cake and they bring it, they set it right in front of that baby on the high chair. And what do they want? What does the baby do? Does the baby cut the cake and pass it around? No. The baby goes like this, right? And then starts throwing the cake. And everyone's laughing. But I'll tell you, if, if I was sitting there and they brought, it was my birthday, and they brought me a cake and set it down for me, if I started going like this and throwing it in their face, no one would be laughing. What would they say? They say, grow up, right? You're immature. Grow up. The church in Corinth was a spiritually immature. Remember back in chapter 3? Verse 1, what Paul says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not yet ready. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. You see, in all areas of life, we need to mature. We need to grow up. Maturity requires self-control. It's a key principle. If we don't learn sexual self-control before we marry, we're unlikely to practice it after we marry. If a person is sexually promiscuous before marriage, they're more likely, certainly, to be unfaithful in marriage. So Paul says abstinence is a good thing because it teaches self-control. But Paul has an even greater benefit from his perspective, and that is that singleness... Oops. Singleness allows undistracted devotion to the Lord. That's why Paul favors it. Verses 7 and 8, he talks about how he would prefer that they would stay single if possible. Look at verse 32, though. He says this. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And this is certainly true. When I was single, I could focus almost entirely on my ministry. My first, my first ministry position was right here, working in the college ministry as a college intern under, under Dennis Keating. 
And I was discipling a number of young guys. In fact, Nicole reminded me, Eric, her husband, was one of the guys, about 18 years old, right? He was one of the guys I was discipling in that context. And it was so great when, when I was single, we could do anything. We would just stay up all night talking, right? Or we could say, hey, let's go backpacking. And the next day, we'd head off backpacking. Got married a few years later, I couldn't do that anymore. You have to, be, you, you have to talk it over, right? You can't just take off, take off any time. If you have kids, you get even more responsibility, right? You can't just take off for the weekend. They call that child abandonment when you do that. Right? In 1997, I was working with a church in San Diego, and um, they were about to leave on an Israel trip. And one of the pastors who was helping to lead the Israel trip couldn't go at the last minute. So they asked me to go. They were going to Jordan and to Israel for 17 days. I said, you bet. I'd love to go to Israel for 17 days. So I went. What I didn't consider was at the time we had a child two and four, a child two and a child four, and my wife was pregnant. And I left for 17 days, Israel and Jordan. I've never lived that down, I have to tell you. All Roxanne has to say is remember Israel, right? And I'm groveling for If I were single, no problem. So Paul says when you're single, you've got undistracted devotion to the Lord. So Paul says, singleness is a good thing. Celebrate it. But that doesn't mean, as some in Corinth were saying, that marriage is bad or that marriage is a second-class state. Paul rather affirms that while singleness is good, marriage is also good. And in fact, marriage is the norm for most Christians. So we see Paul's affirmation of sexual expression in marriage. Verse 2. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Now, this statement by, by Paul bothers some people when, when they read it, because it seems to say that the only reason for marriage is to control sexual desire. Sounds like Paul is saying, I guess if you can't control yourselves, all right, go ahead, get married if you need to. But I think that misses the point. You see, Paul knows that marriage is much more than just for sexual release. He knows that marriage is a lifelong covenant because he knows Genesis 2.24, the two shall become flesh. He knows that marriage is for mutual love and support and encouragement because he knows Genesis 2.18 where Eve is brought to Adam as the perfect complement for Adam. He knows that marriage is also for procreation and pleasure because he knows Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. Paul knows all that. That's fundamental to his Jewish faith. But here Paul is responding to the claim by some that sexual abstinence is right for all believers. He responds, not in this, con this cultural climate, not in this sex-saturated society. Now we read it again. But because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. And it makes sense in that context. He's saying th there's, there's a, a lot of sexual immorality going around. You've, you've got to have a, a, release, a protection from that. Certainly for those called to singleness, God will provide strength to stay celibate. Singleness is a gift from God. But for others, Paul says, that's not always realistic. God has provided the means of protection from sexual sin through fulfilling sexual relations in marriage. Verse 3, the husband should fulfill, because of this, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. It's not just a duty. It's not just about duty. It's about a hedge of protection. 
Let me illustrate this. For a while, I was traveling quite a lot, um, and I began to feel uneasy about Roxanne always being, a, being home alone so much. Uh, so I decided to do some security precautions. I bought a security system. You know, went to Costco, got one of those, those things with all the cameras and stuff, and set, set that all up. And then, then I also bought a new bedroom door for our bedroom. Now, if you know anything about building, you know that, that external doors of your house are solid wood doors. Internal doors, like bathroom doors and, and bedroom doors, are hollow. You can kick right through them. And, and so I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll sort of make a safe room, you know, back there. And so I, I put this solid wooden door, and I put a big deadbolt in it and, and fortify the deadbolt with steel there. And so she's got this extra level of protection. So, so in the unlikely event that an intruder were to get in, right, she could be sealed off back there, and she could see on her, on her phone, she could see the cameras, what was going on out there, call the police. And so, so this sort of gave me a little more confidence. Now, you might say, don't you trust God to protect your wife? Of course I trust God. I trust God to use that door to help protect my wife, right? As one means. We take precautions anyway. That's the means God uses. Those cameras will be helpful to God as he's protecting my wife, right? So you may say, God will protect me from sexual sin. But the question is, how does he protect you? It's through the precautions, in part at least, through the precautions we take. One way, as Pastor Ryan said last week, flee sexual immorality, Paul says in 618. Get away from it. Put up those protections around you. Put a hedge of protection so you stay away from those temptations. Another way for those who are married is for regular sexual relationships in that marriage. So Paul next unpacks a little bit of how we maintain healthy sexual relations in marriage. Is it getting warm in here? I don't know about This is where things get interesting. And Paul shows some real insight. Look at verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Now stop right there. Now in that cultural context, the culture that Paul is writing to, that's exactly what they would expect. In Greco-Roman society, it was a patriarchal society. The wife was viewed basically as the possession of the husband. So when Paul says the wife's body belongs to her husband... You can almost hear the congregation go, amen. That's exactly right. That's what would be expected in that context. She's mine. That's the, the way the husband's perspective was. Now, that's not a popular view today, but that's the, the way the cultural context was. So when Paul says the, the wife's body belongs to her husband, everyone would go, yep, of course. But then Paul says this. He says, not only that, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Did you hear the gasp at that point in the congregation? They said, what? Right? That's unheard of. The husband's body belongs to him, right? The wife belongs to him, but, but his body belongs to himself. He's the man of the house, the king of the castle, right? The lord of the lair. His wife belongs to him. This is revolutionary. This is shocking in Paul's day. This is true women's liberation, true mutuality in relationship. So what's Paul's point? It's that sex is intended to build up the other person, to please the other person, not to please yourself. Just as love is not a feeling, just a feeling we have, it's an action we do for others. So sex is a self-sacrificial act, is meant to be a self-sacrificial act of love for the other person. The purpose of sex is not to please yourself, but the other person. Most of us go into relationships because the other person makes us feel so good, right? Because we feel valued. We feel esteemed when we're with them. 
When I met my wife, I fell in love with her because she was perfect. She is perfect, I should say. I should qualify her. I knew she was going to meet all my needs. Then we got married. And in time, I realized she was not meeting all my needs. And I thought, did I marry the wrong person? I thought I found my soulmate, but she's not meeting all my needs. Slowly dawned on me that marriage is not about meeting, getting my needs met. Marriage is about meeting the needs of the other person. Enabling them to be all that God has called them to be. You see, sex is an act of love and service towards the other person. That's not the way the world views sex, right? Sex was never intended to be an act of self-gratification. It's a way to please and honor your partner. But now we have to get a little practical, right? Maybe it'll really get warm in here now. What does this actually mean in a marriage relationship? For those of you who are married, what does this actually mean? Well, there's a slogan. It's, it's overly simplistic, I know. But it's, it's that men give love to get sex. Women give sex to get love. You heard that, right? Now, that's an exaggeration. I know that's hyperbole, not absolutely true, an overstatement. Don't send me letters, okay? But in general, men have stronger sexual drives. So in marriage, women have a measure of power. She can use sex as a weapon, a tool of manipulation. If her husband displeases her, she can shut down. If you're mean to me, you get nothing. So Paul says that's wrong. That's using sex as a weapon, as a tool of manipulation. Your body is not yours. Your body is his. It's for him. Now, men are different. In my experience, men don't generally use sex as a weapon. I've tried it. It doesn't work. I'm mad at my wife, and I say, okay, no more sex for you. She goes, whatever. A week later, who's dying, right? Who's frustrated? Who comes crawling back, right? So what does Paul mean when he says the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife? Just as the husband's role in sexual relations is not to please himself, but to please his wife. It's to give rather than to get, to do everything in his power to meet her needs. It means romancing her. It means being gentle. It means going at her pace, taking your time, not doing things that make her uncomfortable. Really important. It means never demanding sex. This, Paul says, is the key to sexual fulfillment, mutual love and service. The wife seeking to please her husband, the husband seeking to please his wife, both having in mind their role, and this is key, to give, not to get, to put the needs of the other person first. Sex, like love, is an act of self-sacrificial service to the other person. I can hear some guys saying at this point, but what about Ephesians 5 where it says, wives submit to your husbands. She should do what I want. But keep reading. What is the next verse? Just a few verses down. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I have that up there. How did Christ love the church? He died for the church. He gave himself wholly to the church. That's the ultimate in self-sacrificial service. Dying daily for the one you love. I want you to see Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of these verses. Sometimes people make fun of the message. But the message is is meant to take what Paul had said in that context and bring it into our context. What would he say today? 
if Paul was speaking today. I thought this is just beautiful. Here's Eugene Peterson's translation of this passage. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife. The wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. So that's, that's a perfect description of what this passage is saying. Now, Paul also adds, there is a time for abstinence. Even in marriage, there's a time for abstinence. Look at what he says in verse 5. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice he gives at least three qualifications for this exception. He says it should be mutual, by mutual consent, both the husband and wife agreeing to abstain from sexual relations for a time. Now, that shouldn't be a difficult decision. If you're seeking to please the other person and that's what they desire, you should, you should reach out and, and, and accept that responsibility. He says it's temporary. For a time, he says, this is not an excuse to give up sexual relations in the marriage context. Paul considers that dangerous. Satan will tempt, tempt you. Third, it's for the purpose of spiritual growth, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Purpose is not to avoid your spouse. If you want to avoid your spouse, you need counseling, not abstinence, right? In that context. Let me just close our time together by reading, taking you to another key passage in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great love chapter. Because it brings, just sort of brings home all of this idea of what love is, what sexual relations are meant to be in marriage. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Let's close our time together with a word of prayer. Father, we're talking about marriage right now. We'll talk of, be talking about singleness and, and sexual relations in other contexts, Lord, we'll, in the future. We'll talk about marriage, talk about divorce. But, Lord, we're talking about what sexual relations are all about. We pray, Lord, for our, our, our marriages um, in this church. We pray that they would be strong. We pray that they would be stable. We pray that, Lord, that we would be learning what it means to give to one another, to be self-sacrificial in our love for each other. Lord, I pray for our marriages to be strong. I pray for our families to be strong so that the world can look at us and see and say, that's what we need to heal our families. That's what we need to heal this world. Lord, I pray that we would be a, a testimony and witness to others um, in all areas of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.